We worked with him and through Nike to design this product. And it was a two-year process to design and develop it correctly. But then when we launched it, uh, it was selling out. I had the opportunity to fly to Milan and go on stage and talk in front of all these like magazines and you're listening to the gangstar creative podcast where we talk and share real strategies real tactics and real stories from me and my badass guests to help gangstar creatives and artists like you thrive in both your business and life and i'm your host Ivana. i'm an artist creative entrepreneur speaker and best-selling author are you ready to annihilate the status quo of the starving artist if so let's get it What up, Gangstars? It's your girl, Devana, and this week's Gangstar creative is David Filar. He is a footwear designer by trade, but an all-around creative, and he has the amazing opportunity to work with and manage a design and development team for his full-time job. He's also an artist and painter, a new creator of NFTs, podcast host, a volunteer on the Worcester Arts Council, and an art teacher on the side. He believes in being a better person every single day and that we should all create to inspire others. And on a more specific level, he's super proud of being able to work with Matthew Williams and Nike on a product through Vibram, which allowed him to go to Milan to speak on stage with him and travel to China to collaborate as well. I haven't yet had somebody on the show to talk about the footwear industry, so I'm super excited to have you guys hear the insides and outs of the industry and all the awesome things that David is up to and has been able to do. And before we hop into this episode, I want to give a special shout out to a Gangstar Creative art by Chris Robb, who left an amazing review on the podcast. He shares, I love listening to a good art-focused podcast while I'm creating drawing, and I ran across this podcast, and I love it. The host keeps the convos light and interesting. She asks great questions. The guests are talented, knowledgeable, and inspirational. I always leave each podcast with a piece of info that can help me on my artistic journey. I highly recommend this podcast. Art by Chris Robb, thank you so much for that review, and this is something new that I'm doing where I'm shouting out Gangstar Creatives who leave us a review, so if you want to shout out in the next episode, definitely head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. So let's go ahead and hop right into the episode. All right, Gangstars, I have David Filar here. I'm super excited to have him on the show. What's really cool is that we actually met virtually on this app called Clubhouse, which if you've been listening to the podcast now, you've probably heard me bring it up with a couple guests um, because it's been this really cool pop-in social media platform. It's kind of like live podcasting. That's how I think of it. And you get to connect with people live. And we've been in some rooms together and um, on stage as moderators together. And I actually was just on his podcast. So if you want to see me on the other side of the mic and it's video, definitely go check out the interview that I did with him on his podcast. I'll have that linked below in the show notes. But I'm excited to have him on the show because He's a super cool creative. Um, he's in an industry that I haven't had on the podcast yet. So that's super exciting to dive into. And he's not like your traditional, um, as far as like my past guests of being full-time in the creative business, but he is a full-time um, creative in his industry. And he does a lot of really cool things on the side. So I'm sure a lot of you listeners are going to relate um, and learn so much for, from him. So David, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thank you. Uh, first and foremost, thank you for having me. Um, as I just said offline, I believe this is the first time I've ever been featured on a podcast. So I'm yes. really excited. I've, I've, uh, hopefully rehearsed my my life story enough times at this point and uh, to, to articulate correctly to everybody. So thank you again for having me. <laughs> of course. I'm always honored to be anyone's first 
um, podcasts that they're on. I've actually had pa several past guests where I've been their first podcast. So I'm just adding to the roster now. I'm excited for it. Yeah, definitely. Me too. So let's just start from the beginning. Like tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Who is David? Where did you start? Take us on a journey of how you started and where you are today. All right. Uh, yeah, that's a loaded question. Saddle up. Always is. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my name is David Falar. I am 29 years old. Uh, I live in Worcester, uh, Massachusetts currently. Um, I was originally born in Poland. Um, my family immigrated to America uh, when I was when I was two or three years old, uh, my father came over first with my uncle, um, not speaking the language. Uh, today, I can safely say that my family has lived out the American dream. They put three kids through college. I am nothing wow. without my parents. I'm absolutely nothing without my parents and the sacrifices they made. So I always try to preface that because it doesn't matter what I do because everything that I do is a result of that sacrifice. So they deserve all the credit in the world. Um, so I'm super blessed to have amazing parents. Um, and that really a lot of what I do, it, it stems from that immigrant mindset, that immigrant blood, um, that hustle mentality. The, you know, I grew up in Connecticut. Uh, that was where I spent most of my childhood. Uh, we lived in a small town of 14,000 people, um, primarily white, you know, good education. Um, no real like hiccups, but it was the main hiccup was really not having money. My parents worked odd and end jobs. They, we didn't have anything. Um, you know, it was just like, you have a, a, a shoe budget. Like I work in the footwear industry today, but you have a shoe budget of, you know, $40 at, at Bob's, you know, discounts. Yes, <laughs> but, man. Um, I know what that life is like. <laughs> so it's just like, I, I remember, you know, that we never went out to eat. The only time in the year that we went out to eat was for me and my older sister's birthdays. And we went to McDonald's or Burger King. That was our choice. So it was like $25, $30 at the time in the nineties of, of a budget for our family to go out to eat. And like that, was Hey, as a kid, that was like the best thing ever though. Am totally. I right? But like, <laughs> Today, like it's amazing that I can say that I go out to eat all the time on a personal level, right? Business level, and like not necessarily have to worry about spending fifty bucks or a hundred dollars, because because of the way that my life's transformed. So it's just always nice to reflect back on like where you where we've come from, um, and it and it influences so many decisions that I make today. So that's pretty much like a a. a a very wrapped up version of my childhood, but um, I went to college in Boston. Uh, I have a degree in industrial design. Um, I didn't even know what industrial design was until my freshman year of college. Uh, I originally applied to be an architect um, and I got rejected by Wentworth Institute of Technology, my alma mater. Um, it was kind of like the biggest backhanded compliment that I've ever received them at the time. It was like, we accept you to our university or our college, but not for architecture because you have no portfolio, choose a different major. And so Dang. I picked, uh, yeah, right. I like, you needed so, a portfolio to be a, like a freshman in the yeah, that program. Uh, it's a private school. So yeah, uh, uh, I think they just, still. And I didn't know that. And, but the, the, thankfully they were like, pick a different major and we'll accept you. And I'm like, cool. So I picked civil engineering. I looked on their website. I knew nothing about civil engineering. And after one semester, I hated it. And at the time I lived in a suite uh, in Boston with 13 dudes. 
So it, a lot, a lot of guys in uh, in one small area. Wow. But um, one of my roommates, Lorenzo, was in industrial design, and he was always drawing with markers. Like that was his homework. And I remember like <laughs> seeing and watching him do that. And I'm like, man, I can do that. That's you're like, bro, what are you doing over there? That's homework. <laughs> and, and, it, and it opened my eyes to like the creative side of like, or getting like a career on the creative side, right? Like not that architecture isn't creative, but it's very more structured. Um, mm -hmm. And I apologize about the ambulance going by right now. I no worries. Um, but uh, yeah, it opened my eyes. I switched majors and then four and a half years later, I got my degree in industrial design. And, you know, through that process, my junior year, I really like started falling in love with the idea of becoming a footwear designer. Um, I met some people along the way. Uh, my eyes got opened up to, to certain things, the hype beasts of the world and events in, in person where people are, you know, doing footwear drops and things like that. And I just remember being like, man, this is, this is something I want to do. And I, I remember going to, and I really owe this to this guy, Michael Petrie. He was the creative director of Fry Boots. It's a New York City kind of uh, luxury boot uh, company. At the time, he's no longer there. And they had a Fry uh, party on Newberry Street in Boston. And I got to talking and I was just a kid at the time. And I was showing him on like one of the first iPhones, some of my like sneaker renderings and they were trash. Um, but he like, <laughs> he gave me like just enough like reassurance to just like keep going and keep plugging away. And that was all I needed. And I'm like, this is, this is what I'm going to do. So uh, that was an instrumental part in, in college, at least to, to, to get me into the footwear industry and, and just to keep working. Do you feel like if he would have been quite the opposite of like, not as encouraging that that would have made you stop? Or do you think you still would have kept going because you started to develop a love for it? That's a great question. And I don't, I don't know, maybe, right? Because so many of us, so many of us get uh, deferred away from our passions based on other influences in our lives, whether that's our parents, mm -hmm. whether that's our teachers, our professors, where, where so many people in life will tell you, no, don't do something. And then we don't go do it. And so it could have, could have been, but I, I'm a blind optimist. I like, I like to tell people that because I, I, I <laughs> changed my perspective on life that way. And, and things get a lot better and easier and happier when you always try to look at the positives of things. And so, yeah, I, I, I focus on the fact that he played an instrumental role in my decision. Mm. Now, were you always like... Were you always like a sneakerhead, um, like before this, or are you kind of like by stepping into the the industry and like learning more about you know footwear? That's kind of like where your love of shoes came from. Because even for me in the past, like I was a, I would say I was like a wannabe sneakerhead and like hype beast, but because like I had friends that like had all the shoes, but I couldn't or my family couldn't like afford to like own these and I'm just like how are you like how are you at like 16 having all these like exclusive dunks and I'm just like one day I'm gonna be able to like have all the sneakers in the world which I don't have all the sneakers in the world but when I do eventually get like my house I definitely have a pictured like a wall of a bunch of sneakers um, yes, that I've definitely. always wanted so I'm curious is that something that like growing up like you had a love for like sneakers and you know the culture and things like that or that kind of came as you were working your profession that's a it's a it's a tremendous question and the answer is very bluntly no because <laughs> like I again I grew up in an immigrant household we didn't have these luxuries people yeah. I've never owned 
a pair of Jordans. And that, that statistic blows people's brains out of their face simply because I work in footwear. But guess what? Like, yeah, I grew up in the 90s. We didn't watch the NBA. Michael Jordan means nothing to me. Like wow. I understand his value in history. I understand how great he was now. But growing up like on, a, on an emotional level, I don't have that connection to him or sneakers. So it's a little bit different now growing up did I like always want to wear like weird sneakers and stuff. Like I remember in high school, I'd shop on Karma Loop which I don't know if you <laughs> of course on. yeah karma loop was so great at exposing like these really niche kind of really cool hip brands at a very low price and I remember buying these wicked bright like all red like sneakers for like 59 bucks and it was like my senior year of high school or something like that and Man, were you were balling <laughs> bright, bright red right and uh and I just like loved the fact that I owned something that nobody else had to mm. me, that was always that that's always been a staple in my life of owning something that nobody else has today. Like my sneaker collection is it's not the classics that people rave about or that they take L's on every Saturday or whatever it is. It's always like these very unique eclectic products because I like having things that nobody else has. Mm. I love that. That's such a different um, take on that. And I think you probably have more of a deeper of appreciation for a, a shoe because you understand like the build of it you know it's kind of like even for me as an artist and as a painter like I'll go into you know a museum for example or any gallery or show with my husband and he loves art like he has his favorite styles and stuff but I can appreciate like different types of things because I know like the process and what goes into it but for him he's like that shit is ugly like why would anybody buy that I'm like babe it's because like the process and like they had to do this this and this and he's just like whatever you know so totally the emotional connection that people can have through products is why they they buy and sell them right it's it's that's the beauty of it. And like, so yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Now that I understand the process behind it a little bit more, I am a little bit more selective in, in what I choose to purchase or what I choose to gravitate towards um, because there's so many options out there. But yeah, I mean, and also just for context for people. So um, I've been in the footwear industry for, uh, this is my seventh year I'm going on. Uh, and I work for a brand uh, called Vibram. That is my employer. Uh, and I, I manage the design and development group there. Um, I get to work with wonderful humans uh, within the organization. And I, I, I'm a big people person in general. And I get to work with uh, a number of brands across the globe, uh, ranging from Nike to Timberland to New Balance to any anything in between the military so that it, it it's provided a, a tremendous of opportunity and i i would you know i'd be lying if i said that my my employer hasn't um been so supportive in my career thus far because they they totally have and and that's why after seven years i'm still there right yeah wow that's so cool so so taking a step back like how did you end up getting that job because uh, is it hard to like get a good uh, like corporate job with a great brand like that um in your industry or like what was that process like yeah that, that's a really that's a really good question and i i think there's there's a number there's a couple different ways to look at it, right? The answer to the direct answer to your question is yes, it's very difficult. Uh, even today, it's very difficult. And it was difficult back then. And it's always been difficult to break through into the industry. I will say that I like, again, I've always been working, 
I, I remember cleaning, my mom was cleaning houses and funeral homes when I was growing up. And I remember, you know, she would pay me and my older sister $10 underage to go clean a funeral <laughs> home at night because she was so tired and we would help her that way. And then at 16, I got a job making sandwiches at Subway. And I did that for two years. And then I'd go in between, you know, summer uh, semesters off in college, I'd go work at my dad's factory uh, for, you know, hour and like an hourly wage. So like, I've always been working and I've always been trying to create a better life every single year that I've been alive. And when I reached the point towards the end of my uh, college years, I remember it was three months before graduation. And I was thinking to myself, sitting at my studio desk, and I'm like, I'm going to get a job before I graduate. That was so important to me because I saw my friends being talking about, I'm going to take some time off after college. You know, <laughs> I'm going to go travel. I'm going to do this. Like, there's always going to be a job waiting. Now, they've all ended up perfectly fine. And it's not to say that that strategy was wrong by any means. Everyone's got a different strategy. But mine was purely, I'm going to get a job before I graduate. That was my mission. Because, listen, I've like my parents put us through college, like working these crazy jobs, like moving to America. And I'm like, the least I could do is just get a job out of college so I could start paying off these, these stupid amount of loans, right? Mm -hmm. So it was... It wasn't easy. I, I told this story just on an individual level to people over the years. I remember being sitting at my studio desk and like searching for jobs, right? And you'll get the normal hits. You'll get the internship at New Balance or Adidas or, uh, you know, wherever it is. But that's where everybody's applying. And I was like, I got to find a different approach. And I remember stumbling onto 210 Foundation, which is this uh nonprofit organization that helps footwear families or people who work in the footwear industry when they uh, encounter disasters or they need, need relief funds for any, any way, shape or form, uh, this foundation supports you. And so they had a list of sponsors or other footwear companies who donate. And it was a list mm. of like a hundred brands or something, something ridiculous. And I'm like, this is my ticket. All these brands I've never heard of because everybody thinks of the Nikes, the Adidas and, and things like that of the world. But there's so many footwear brands that nobody's ever heard of. And I was like, I'm going to use this list and email every single one of them. And guess what I did? I emailed all hundred plus of them and I got two responses. One of them is my current employer. So it Dang. was- Dang! Right? It's like, it's like you have to get a hundred no's in order to get one yes, but that one yes can lead you to incredible opportunities in the future. But if you Oh my gosh, I love that. <laughs> right? That's, so, that's such a good story. And just like for everybody listening, you know, I just feel like there's so many people and not targeting you, whoever is listening right now specifically, but it's just like some people don't put in that effort. Like you emailed a hundred, probably a hundred plus people, you know, where people are like, I can't find a job. I can't you know, do this or that. I'm just like, what exactly have you even, like, what work have you put in? Like, have you really put in the work? Are you kind of half-assing it, you know? But like, just hearing that is just like a true testament to like the hustle and like your determination to reach that goal of yours. Because it, it also reminds me of my husband because when he was, um, before we had our business, he was uh, going to school for IT. And so he was wanting to get in like a leadership development program in like a fortune 500 like company or you know higher and he had to do the research and find every single corporate company that had a leadership development program and best believe he emailed every single one of them it was like a hundred plus companies and Holy. he ended up like 
landing one. So I, I love that it works like that type of, you know, sweat equity works. Yeah. People, people are, are too easy to give up and they think that, oh, I've emailed 10 people and I've heard back from none. And I'm like, okay, well email another 10 and then another 10 until you do get a yes, because mm-hmm. it's too competitive. These there's too many people on this planet competing for the same amount of jobs. It's yeah. What are you doing to differentiate yourself? Are you willing to actually, if this is, I always dilute it down to this. If you're applying for a job that you really love, you really love, how far are you willing to go to get that job? Are you willing to send hundred? Because if you're willing to send 10, it's not the job for you. That's my, that's my immediate reaction is I don't think you love this career path. Yeah. It, I mean, that's facts. I mean, even like when we, like even for our company, we would hire like, um, like part-time contractors and stuff and we would get applications. I'm the one that always has to handle it. And these applications that I would get, I'm just like, you didn't even try. You didn't even <laughs> like look into our company. Like, I'm like, this is, this is why people aren't getting jobs is because they're not like, they don't care enough, you know, to, to get the job or to make a living or whatever. And yeah, it's, it's so, not that they're not skilled or they're not qualified. It's that they don't build a story around themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, that's so good. Congrats on that, by the way. I know that was a while ago, but like, wow. Now, was there like a determining factor that made them choose you over like another applicant or like, was there a story behind like how they hired you? That's an amazing question. I'm just going to keep saying that every time you ask a question. Uh, Yes. um, Actually, they were hiring for one designer at the time, but uh, my boss back then liked me so much in the interview process. And I went on four or five interviews with the company. So I thought that was a lot at the time. And I'm like, man, they're either they're like just stringing me along or like, what's going on? And it was pretty much that they were having internal conversations of, can we afford another designer? So they put me on a one-year contract to pretty much prove it out because I was out of college. I had no work experience. The other person that they hired did have previous work experience. Um, and so I think it was like three months in that, that my boss was just like, all right, fuck the contract. Like you're hired. Um, and so, yeah, that was, a, it was a unique process because like, I was like, I was just going to take the job regardless just to get my foot in the door. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a unique kind of experience of like, Hey, I'm going up against somebody else for this job. Who's potentially more skilled or has more experience and just selling yourself in person, I think is, is so important. Did you feel like there was a lot of pressure on you that first year since it was like a first year contract, basically like a test trial on you? Honestly, honestly, no, I like I've never it's interesting you asked that question because I've never thought about it. Like I've never I I was I remember being so in love with the job. I remember the first months. Mm. I remember getting chills every single day I walked into that door and being able to draw every single day and getting paid for it. That again, coming from my background that blew my fucking brains out. It was like, I'm getting paid to create. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Like, so no, there was there. I'm too competitive. That like thought never crossed my mind because I'm always in competition with myself. I don't give a shit who's sitting next to me. I'm always going to be better. It it doesn't matter to me. It's like, I'm going to, I will never let somebody else or an outside force determine my fate if work ethic is the only thing that I can control, which for most humans it is. Mm -hmm. I love that. 
Now, I don't know if you brought this up earlier, but were you always creative and like drawing and things like that? Like before, I know when you went to, uh, when you first applied for college, like that wasn't like the industry that you wanted to major in. But before that, like, were you always like creative and just kind of never thought that that could be something you could do or literally in college, that's when like you started? Yeah, I mean, I, I always gravitated, uh, like I always liked art, you know, I remember, and I think this is a theme across America is that like, like art studios and like ed- art education isn't properly funded and distributed to students. And it, and it really wasn't where I grew up either. Right. And, but I, I remember loving like doing wood shop and I remember loving doing art classes. And I, I was always like sketching or doodling, you know, the classics, right? Like I was always, I have this vivid memory of my youth, like sitting on the sidewalk in our, in our, in our street growing up. And I would just like draw my neighbor's houses. Like I, and that's why I wanted to be an architect. Like I love drawing houses. And I remember mm. like this family walked behind me with the stroller. I don't know why I vividly remember. And they were like, oh, that's so good. And again, it was like this boost of encouragement of like, and I'm talking like I was 13 or 14 or something like that at that, at that age. So I just, I remember doing these, these creative things. It, did I know that that was actually like a career or like, you know, specifically in footwear? No idea. I, I didn't know what industrial design was. I don't think most people know what industrial design is. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that's what it was called. <laughs> and so yeah, I was looking design. more into your stuff. Yeah. It's, it's basically just the design of all products, right. In the universe. So you think about your toothbrush, think about your chair, think about your TV stand, think about your coffee table. Somebody's got to design these things. How long does the process take <laughs> for a shoe? Like, give me the process, it, it, the rundown, uh, the walkthrough. You'll you'll normally get the, it, it usually takes about 18 months, right? From, from okay. initial start, like, you know, somebody's got to come up with a brief, right? So basically like a scope of work where here's the criteria that we want to achieve. Here are the attributes that it needs. Here are the performance requirements. Here are the materials we'd like to use. And then you start the creation, right? So you you need some sort of direction or guardrails in, before you start creating. Um, then it gets handed off to design. Design starts creating based on the, those brief, briefs. Um, and then you go, you know, once the design's approved, which takes multiple rounds usually, uh, then you go into the development side of things where it's more kind of articulate and fine tuning on a, on a very like micro level of like millimeters by millimeters, you're adjusting things. and you know, you're doing material overlays and construction methods of, you know, this rubber is going to get laminated to this, you know, midsole and how is it getting laminated and, you know, how much do the, the, the operation uh, workers need to trim, you know, this part off and things like that, like these minute details. Um, and then you go into the sampling stage where then you get to see, you know, physical representations of your creation. And usually sometimes you, you tweak it, you learn something after the first prototypes and then you adjust it and then you build some shoes out and then you put them on field testers and then they go, if it's a running shoe, then they go run in it and then they give you feedback. And then you do it pretty much all over again based on that feedback. And usually that ends up after one or two tries becomes the, the product that people see on shelves. And that is a very quick overview. And I'm definitely not doing enough people's jobs and uh, process justice in that quick recap, but it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's it, I'm always amazed as to how, like how many people's hands and how many jobs touch one, one singular footwear product or mm-hmm. any product in general that people design or develop. And then you're able to sell it at a hundred dollars at $120 and <laughs> still make money. Yeah, that is 
pretty insane when you kind of look at it that way. I mean, I, I, I always know that like a, t- a bunch of hands, you know, touch specific products, especially shoes. Um, but just thinking about like, from that point of view, it's like, well, this is like a work of art, you know, and like all these people are, you have to, they have to pay to, to create these shoes and you're only selling it for this amount of money, but they have tons of shoes. So it kind of makes up for that. Totally. Yeah. Hey gangstar, sorry to interrupt, but if you're enjoying this episode so far, stop what you're doing right now and share this podcast with your friends on social media or text it to a friend in your contacts. If you're a true gangstar and want to uplift and empower other creatives like I know you do, you're gonna wanna take a few seconds to do this now. Go ahead and pick your phone back up or click that browser tab that you're playing this episode in, hit that pause button and share it now. Hello, what are you waiting for? All right. Thank you for doing that. Now let's get back to the show. If somebody listening wants to get into this industry, like what advice would you give to that person? Um, man, I get this question a lot and there's really no right answer. I, and I, I try to, I know that's, that's such a, that's a stupid answer, right? <laughs> I, I get that, but it's the truth. It's like, I always tell people, go after the roles that you want and you personally love. So you don't have to work even like taking, like even there's a major difference between designer and developer, for example, I'll dilute it to that. And if somebody's really wanting to break into the industry, you know, they could potentially do development and then they could start like nibbling at design to showcase those skills. Yeah, that's one way to get into design, for example. Or, you know, a lot of designers ask the question of like, what 3D software do I need to know? Like, is the world going more 3D these days and more digital versus like, do I, should I focus on hand sketching? And the answer is like, well, what do you excel at? What, what are you passionate about? Do you love hand drawing or do you want to use the computer all day? Do you want to learn 3D? Because if, you, if you're forcing yourself to learn something, why, what, what makes you think that you're going to be successful at that job? It's like, it's like growing up. You know, I used to hate reading. I, I, I still to this day, like struggle with it. But growing up, they'd, they'd force us in English class to read these stupid books that nobody really cared about, right? <laughs> Today, I love reading books that I actually have interests in. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean I'm a bad reader and it doesn't mean I hate reading. That's an extreme. But my, my 18 years of my, my, my former life was for these books forced in my face. And no wonder I didn't like them because I didn't choose them. The same concept can be applied to your career path. If you don't love doing one aspect of it, don't focus on it. Get really good at something else. And that's the value you're going to bring to that employer. So I, I, I get the question of like how to get into the industry and like what should people focus on? But there's really no one right answer. I always go back to like, what do you focus on your strengths? What value can you bring to somebody else? Now, say someone has all the skill sets, right? They've practiced, they know exactly what they want. They know exactly what position they want to get into. What some advice would you give to that person? Um, just work really hard. <laughs> I, I mean, if you have all the skill sets, you're going to get a job, right? I think that's, that's the, and be a decent person. Don't be a dick. Nobody likes working with, with, with people that aren't fun to work with. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think, Emotional intelligence is more and more of a requirement these days than ever before versus versus IQ. And I see it in my practice. I see it in the world around me. I see it with the, my colleagues, my peers, 
my friends, uh, business relationships, people don't want to work with bad people. So if you have all the skill sets, I would say tailor, tailor those to accentuate who you are as a person. What, what's your personality and how do you elevate that to cross pollinate into the professional world? Because when you have a, a gold mine of a person who's just really easy to work with, who's fun, uh, you know, who's outgoing, you know, even if you're introverted, it doesn't really matter if you're able to like hone in on that being like, I'm really good at working by myself, but I'm really collaborative via email, like leverage that. Like it's, there's no one or wrong way to go about it. You know, but I always, I always think about like the hiring process and it's like, am I willing to sit on an airplane for 17 hours going to China for a, a designer development trip with this person? To me, that, that, that question is going to answer a lot of things about whom we're hiring, right? Mm-hmm. That's a long period of time to get to know somebody. So <laughs> being able to answer that, that question confidently, yes. And I know that's very specific to footwear, but you know, I think it's, it's important because at the end of the day, in any profession, we're all human and you're working with other people. And so your skills are only going to take you so far. You have to elevate your persona and who you are. Mm, that's good. Speaking of going to China, I saw that you mentioned you've, you know, worked on a really cool project and got to, you know, speak on stage in Milan and go to China to collaborate. Is, are China tra- like visits like frequent for you with your, your position? Um, yeah. Was it more just for this project or like? Pre-COVID, uh, we usually go to China like twice a year. Right. I think that, that's pretty standard in the footwear industry, depending on your position, depending on your role. Obviously, there's always nuances, but it's fairly um, that's fairly traditional. Um, the, the project that, that we spoke about, um, you know, I'm really fortunate and I'm very, very blessed. And I love that I was able to be part of this was uh, we worked at, at work on a collaboration with uh, Matthew Williams, who's a fashion designer uh, who owns his own brand called Alix, and now he's the creative director of Givenchy. Um, but we worked with him and through Nike um, to design this product, and it was uh, a two-year process to design and develop it correctly. But then when we launched it, uh, it was selling out. I had the opportunity to fly to Milan. Uh, and go on stage and talk in front of all these like magazines and be on stage with him and another colleague of ours at work uh, just to really tell that story. And then two weeks later, I'm on a plane going to China to do further development with him. And it was just, I look back and I think a lot of people, you know, hopefully can do this in their lifetime is, you know, no job's perfect but we're willing to do the jobs and the roles that aren't as fun if they're outweighed by the, the golden nuggets throughout the year. And this is one that like, to me, like I get chills talking about and it just provided me so much value. And like, I will forever remember these trips and these things and these experiences and talking and, you know, being in a foreign country, you know, with somebody, you know, to get to know them and what they do on a personal level is so amazing and so yeah you know going to china in itself is is always special to me i used to i used to hate it and i'll I'll openly admit that and it sounds really stupid but i've learned to love it and for this reason alone is 
we live in a bubble in America, in my, in my perspective. And unless you go outside and experience new cultures and how the rest of the world operates, you really don't get enough perspective on the challenges that other people go through. We have it so good here, like so good. And mm-hmm. going to China in a communist country where they don't speak English, they don't, unless you're like with somebody who does, um, you know, if you're lucky to even see a sign in mainland China that's in English. So it's like, you know, you just get such perspective. Like I remember uh, being in Beijing and I'm walking around, even in a touristy area, like I'd get flocked by being a, a six foot white male that they don't see very often. Like <laughs> I get blocked by these children trying to take selfies with me, like real, like, like, like blowing my brain out. Like, I'm like, what is happening? But to them, it's like unique, right? They live, they're force fed the information that they see. They don't have open access yeah. to the internet like we do. So to me, it's like the cultural relevance of experiencing the way other people live is so important. What was that um, switch for you? Cause you said you didn't like it. What was like, why didn't you like traveling and then what was it that kind of made you be like more appreciative of it it was yeah it was it's not that I, I didn't like traveling it was specifically to China like it was, one it's a long trip right and then two it's like you're surrounded by you're you're totally displaced out of your comfort zone that's what it comes down mm-hmm. to when I was 21 22 23 years old my first couple of years in the industry I was just a kid like I, <laughs> you're like fuck this shit <laughs> like, I was like yeah I was cool to travel and do and see these things but I didn't have the perspective I do today I was more like man there's nothing good here like it sucks but then you <laughs> step back you put your phone down you look around you start talking to these people they're good humans like they're really good they're talented you know it trying to get such a negative uh you know perspective from america like everything's made in china you know it's such shit quality it's like no there's hard workers over there like they they, they it's just their environment it's not their fault it's so yeah. i i don't know to me it was just a growth opportunity it was it was it was just you have to put yourself in these uncomfortable positions. You have to experience new things. And these things take time. It's not always like a magical, you know, moment of like, aha, that's why it's just, it takes years. It takes time to like gain this type of perspective in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. Um, And you also, you know, kind of taking, taking a turn here out of your, main course of work um you also paint you also teach art classes you volunteer at the city art council tell our listeners a little bit more about kind of like your side hustles and side passions that you do sure no this is a this is a good kind of uh digression um it's a loaded question right and i think i've always had that that hustle mentality i always poured myself into anything i do i feel like anything I try, I always go like a hundred percent at, like, there's no, there's no half pregnant for me. Like I'm all in or I'm not. And so, <laughs> and so anytime I try something new, I really devote myself to learning that craft. And then eventually when I get to a status, like a personal set, like no, no other measurement system besides my own personal satisfaction, then I'll like stop doing it and I'll go learn something else. But there was a, there's a key point in my life and I won't go into the details, but um, you know, I, I, had a, a, I won't use the word traumatic, but it was just a, a life altering event um, where my perspective again shift, where everything that I was building up in my life um, came crashing down. 
and I had to reevaluate everything around me and what I was really doing with my life. And it changed my perspective because back then, and this was at like 24, 20, uh, 25, 26 years old, where I'd work really hard. I'd work 50, 60 hours a week at my, at my day-to-day job. And then I'd go home and I'd sit and we'd, we'd watch Netflix and you'd, you'd just go through life. And then you'd go, you know, enjoy weekends and you'd go on a vacation once or twice a year. And when something dramatic happens in life where it really shakes up your plans as you start planning, you know, people always ask, oh, what's a five-year plan, 10-year plan? Today, I say, fuck that, that doesn't exist. Um, but, you know, when you have something that, that alters that, that perspective, you know, I started looking at what was really making me happy and my job is one, like I love my job, but then what was I doing after that? Like, that's not everything in life that doesn't define us. And so then I started doing new things, right? Then I bought a house because I was like, that's what, that's what I got to do. I got to buy a house that'll make me happy. And then that turned into an art project in itself. And then I was like, oh my God, this house is not for me. Um, so then I sold the house, but then, then I was like, well, what else? Then during that process, I, uh, I was like, I'm going paycheck to paycheck. I bought a house by myself. Like, what am I doing? Like, you know, like, you know, growing up in the nineties or or depending on how old people or your listeners are, it's like, you you get all this information streamlined into your brain of like either your parents or your teachers or whomever. And they're like, you get married, you buy a house, you have kids, you do this. Like, this is, this is the platform that the boxes you check for life. Right. And scooter is very loud. Um, but, but, um, you have all these boxes that are preset for us. And then I started going after them. I'm like, these are easy things I could check off. So I bought a house, I was going paycheck to paycheck. And I'm like, I need a second job, right? And so I looked online and I'm like, what's something creative I could do? And so this is now oh, a little over two years ago, I saw a job to be an art instructor as in teaching painting classes at like one of those wine bars that you like teach or you paint. Yeah. I used to do that. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I stumbled into that and they asked me again, similar to like my architecture portfolio, they asked me for my prior work and I had none. I've never painted before really. And so they're like, well, <laughs> you need to show us that you could paint. And I'm like, but I'm creative. Like during my, like, I don't think it's going to be a challenge. And so anyway, I went through the interview process. Um, and then I had to teach the artists and I like basically made up these steps in my head of like how to paint. And it's not too dissimilar from like rendering a shoe, to be honest. There's like a base mm-hmm. layer. There's, there's a background, there's a base layer, there's highlights and there's shadows at like the basic level, right? Yes. And so the same applied to painting in these, these classes. And so that I got hired. What was really beautiful about that second job and, you know, to a lot of people always ask me like for the past two years, why I've had a second job because my, like, my, my career is fine in itself, right? But I've learned so much from, from teaching those art classes. Like when you have to get up on stage and teach up to 50 people how to do something step-by-step step, where they've n- they have no artistic bone in their damn body, right? <laughs> yeah. Like you have to instruct them like calmly. And sometimes they're drunk too. <laughs> they, they're drinking, they're, with their friends, they're talking, they don't really care. There's children screaming. There's people throwing, like everything, right? And then you yeah. have to get on stage and compose yourself and demand that people like understand that, hey guys, we're doing this together. And then also be an entertainment factor, provide comic relief, articulate mm-hmm. properly. These are these are stages that your normal job isn't gonna teach. These are things that I would have never, like 
I'm such a better public speaker today than I was two, three years ago before that job because I, I was forced into these uncomfortable situations. I remember the first couple of classes I taught, I was sweaty, like I wore a gray shirt and I was- <laughs> Oh no. <laughs> I was soaked, I was so nervous. Today, I don't sweat it like a, even the tiniest bit getting on stage because it's my comfort zone now. Oh, and that's awesome. So it's, it's informed me and allowed me to be a better manager and a better leader at work too, because now I know the proper way to educate people and like how you have to break down a process. So like, again, it's like, this is why I do these weird things. You talk about like me painting on the side. So like that informed now my, my creativity of like painting for commissions and painting for, you know, galleries and stuff like that. Because now I learned those basic skills. How do I apply that to my personal life? How do I want to, I create sneaker paintings and then I sell art prints and I, you know, I can cross pollinate these worlds. It's like, it's breaking all the preset barriers that life has instituted of like, Sneakers is sneakers, art is art, music is music, digital is digital. Today in 2021, I can gladly say that there are no more of those boundaries. The world is our oyster, people. The, the internet makes all of that possible. Um, and so, you know, you, and then the volunteering aspect, you know, uh, I'll just touch on, and I know this is a very long segment and hopefully people are still with me. The volunteering- I'm sure segment, they are, it's good. I, I reached a point in my life, this was a little over a year ago, where I looked around specifically, this was pre-COVID. So yeah, it was over a year ago, it was pre-COVID, but I looked around uh, my apartment. This is after my house. I looked around this apartment that I live in and I'm like, man, I have it all. Like I looked around and I'm like, I'm so thankful. And I'm after a lot of hard work, I have everything that a lot of people would kill for. And I was like, I need to start giving back. And it's that simple to me. It's like, I, what I could go buy more materialistic things. I could spend my time not helping other people. I can spend my time not being a mentor or not answering every DM or not helping answer these, these questions that are so damn repetitive and that people could probably just use Google for, but <laughs> if I can help somebody else out. I'm all about that because I wouldn't be where I am today without, you know, bits and pieces of other people helping me. And I think that's the only way everybody can win in life is if we start helping each other. So the volunteering aspect is, is really important to me. Uh, I discovered it a little bit late. If somebody's still in their late, late teens or early twenties, get into it sooner than later. It, one, it's really rewarding, like seeing people's faces light up or, you know, I, 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 I volunteer on, on the Worcester Arts Council and like we just finished our grant season and we distributed like $219,000 to artists. Wow. Not painters, like musicians, uh, inventors, dancers, like $219,000. You know how crazy of a number that is? And like to be part of that, like it's not just me, right? Like it's a, it's, it's a group effort. But like the fact that I can like contribute my like education and my knowledge to help support people who are struggling that's fucking huge. Why wouldn't somebody want to be part of something like that? <laughs> wow. I mean, I can, I can tell from your passion and conviction how much that, that means to you. Um, and I think it's, it's really cool, like hearing your story and your journey and like how you still find time to do all the things that light you up, you know, and some, because some people would just stop at you know, the, the art classes, but then you volunteer and like, it seems like you have a really good balance of both. Um, yeah. Now, do you go ahead? Oh, sorry. To, sorry to interject. I think 
the key, the key word, one, one, you said two things. I love the phrase, like, how do you light people up? I love that. Like, I think that's not enough, <laughs> not enough people say that. Like, why wouldn't you want to light somebody else's day up? Right. Um, and then the second thing you said is balance. And I'm still working on that. I'm definitely a workaholic. Like I definitely probably work a little too much, but to me, it, it's like, we could literally die any one of these days. So if I'm not going hard every day at pursuing what I want to pursue in life and what I want to create for myself, I'm doing it wrong. This is my perspective. It's not the answer for everybody. I want to make that super clear, right? Not everybody has the energy to go 16, 18 hours a day. Every, some people like sitting on their couch and relaxing at the end of the day with a glass of wine. I respect that. If that works for you, I'm super happy for you. But to me, it's about if I want to do the things I want to do, if I want to see all these countries around the world, if I want to interact and meet every possible person I can possibly meet on this planet, I need to work really hard at that. Mm, I love that you, I love that you interjected and shared that, that piece. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you see yourself like, if say your, your painting side of things start to take off, would you ever want to do that full time instead of your job? Or is that something that you can't really determine yet? Or that's a, that's you feel a, like it'd always be both? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think this will, this will help people that are kind of teetering between like a nine to five, even a nine to five that they hate just to pay their bills and then the, <laughs> the creative side of them. And somebody on Clubhouse said this, and I really wish I remember who said this, but they, 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 they shared something that really opened my eyes. And it was like, uh, and I'm totally going to butcher this, but it was like, Batman can't be Batman at night without being Bruce Wayne during the day. And to me, if you think about that, you can mm -hmm. live two lives. You can be creative at night and fulfill that part of you. You don't have to go. It doesn't have to be 100% all the time. Like there can be to, to the word balance, like you can work a nine to five to support and make you happy on the side. Now, granted, if you can sustain yourself to answer your direct question, if you could sustain yourself and be happy or the majority of the time, I don't know if there's, there's such a thing as 100% happiness, but if you could sustain yourself doing a passion of yours full time, then absolutely. But there's a lot of factors that go into that. I've thought about that question for myself personally, and I, I'm just a big believer that you can make as much time for yourself um, or for anything as, as, as humanly possible, right? Like there's always time to pursue another passion. You just have to get rid of something else. And if that means no watching TV or not talking to your parents, you know, one night less a week, or if that means seeing your family less, again, it's all up to the individual. I personally don't know if I would go 100% into painting. I love painting. I love creating an emotion when people receive my paintings. Like last week, somebody created a, they, they found me on, on TikTok. They purchased the painting off my Etsy. Then they made a TikTok about that painting. That to me, like- That's so dope. Those, <laughs> Congrats. That's, thank you. That's, thank you very much. That's three tiers of love, right? One, you appreciated my content and my TikTok. Then you went out of your way to purchase and pay me for, for the artistic value I've brought you, right? Then you loved it so much, you created content around my work. That to me is like the greatest feeling like where somebody's able to share the amount of love you put into a piece of art or creative to build more content around it. Like that's, that, that blows, blows me away. Right. 
but I struggle with the idea of going full-time into anything, right? Like even 16 hours a day doing one thing. I don't, I don't think that's sustainable in the long run because as soon as you, a lot of times when you monetize something or do it like full-time or go all in, you like lose a love for it. And I know that's, you know, some people are probably going to disagree with that statement. And, but that's also because I haven't tried that fully yet, but that's just like my preconceived kind of listening and talking and understanding what other, other people have tried or done in the past. But I think that I would lose my love for creating artwork if I went full-time, you know, I still mm. think I, I have the time and the ability, the weekends, the nights uh, to, to have that energy to create. Like I still have goals, right? Like I want to do my first mural eventually. Like that's a goal of mine like in the art space. I don't know if I'm going to be good, but I'm going to try it. I'm going to get somebody to take a flight risk. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and that, and then I'll see if I love that, maybe I'll do another one. Maybe that turns into my, my 30 year career is painting murals. I don't know, but I'm willing to try it. Do I think today painting with oils or acrylics is my full-time job? No, I, I, I don't think so. I love doing it part-time. I love being able to have uh, a, like a, a second source of income from it, but I use that second source just to fund more art. Like, I, what else do people do with like extra money? I don't know. They usually buy materialistic <laughs> things. I just buy more art with it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's typically like, you know, a full cycle, I think with anything, especially when it comes to creative businesses or just any creative side hustle that you get money for. I usually try to put as much of it back into the business that you can so you can continuously, you know, grow and evolve. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How do you deal with um, like creative burnout? So I find it very impressive that, you know, not only are you creative in your day job, but you also do like the art classes and then you still like create paintings on your own. And I know for me, when I used to do, um, I worked for paint night doing paint uh, classes and like just doing paint night paintings all the time. I got creative burnout from that to where like it was hard for me to paint like my own stuff, you know, or, you know, put a paintbrush to the canvas um, for commissions and things like that. So do you ever experience that type of creative burnout or do you just like just do it and just kind of do what you have to do? No, I, 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 I love this question too. Um, burnout's real, right? Especially when you, you're, you're nonstop all the time. And I, I always uh, laugh or like get a little like, you know, blush a little bit when, you know, people will slide into my DMs and call me like the Energizer Bunny or things like that. And like, <laughs> it's like, ama like, I'm not, I experience burnout like every two weeks, people. <laughs> and it's not, I, I know it's not healthy to say, but it's the truth. And it, maybe it's not that free. Maybe it's like every two to three weeks or something like that. But like, I'm getting better at it. I'm working with my therapist. I'm trying to like see the signs of when it's when it's happening and then trying different methods to working around it or, or understanding when it's happening and then being able to like avoid it, right? And like taking the time for myself. Um, so like, it's a work in progress, I would say. Like it's, it's something that I experience very, very frequently. It'll shut me down for a day or two. Like I'll get really low for a day or two and I'm not able to create, but I've learned to not fault myself during that time because it's just part of the process or that's how I look at it. Like if I'm not, if I make a list every single week of like the things I want to accomplish on the side, right? My side hustles, let's call them. And I only get to like two out of six of them 
Why would I fault myself for them? I made that schedule. Who, nobody else yeah. is holding me accountable but myself. And I theoretically have all the time in the world. I'm going to live to 100 years old. So I got three more lifetimes. Who's, who's rushing me to do this? Why would, I, why would I have anxiety over not completing these things when I'm the one creating the list? So I've gotten better at that perspective side of it in regards to like the creative burnout, which is like nothing's coming pen to paper or brush to canvas, right? That's a little different. Um, I used to be able to say that travel was the biggest uh, counter to that. I love traveling. I've been fortunate to visit 30 countries in 29 years of my life. That's um, awesome. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge part. Like the seeing other cultures is so big for like inspiration, and it's yeah. and it is for so many creatives. In COVID, it's been much much different, right? It's like you're surrounded by these four walls and nothing's moving inside. <laughs> and it's like, how do you stay creative? And it's it's a challenge. It's it's never easy. I found that the biggest source of inspiration over the past year has been talking to like minded individuals. I think with with things like Clubhouse or watching YouTubes that are actually informative and not surrounding yourself with the negative media that's social media like or the the pol politics or uh, just news outlets why would you why would you dilute your brain uh, to negative things and when that's going to bring you down it's not going to force you to be creative but I'll listen to things like on YouTube of how rappers made it or what they had to struggle through or what, mm -hmm. um, you know, outside of my industry, what other people did and that creativity will influence something new or a spark a new idea. So I always, I always try to tell people like, listen or visually look at something that's completely irrelevant or might seem irrelevant to what you're going after. So if you're a painter and you're not creative or you don't know what to paint, go watch like, an orchestra perform or, or like on YouTube or whatever, like do something completely different and out of the box. And it, I, I bet it like informs you a little bit more uh, on the creative side. Yeah, no, I, I think that's awesome that you shared that. Cause that's something that I suggested to people too. And it's something that I do personally as well, because you can find inspiration from like anything and, and people's stories can always light a fire in you. Um, that you never knew existed. So I think that's really cool that you shared that. Yeah, totally, I agree. Now, what's next for you? Is there anything that our Gangstar Creative listeners can look forward to? Do you have any cool projects you're working on either you know, in, in the job or you know, on the painting side of things or anything like that? Yeah. On the job, on the job front, I can't share too much. I figured. Uh, I, I, I will. I will say I'm really excited about the the, the rest of 2021 uh, for our brand and for our company. I think we're we're working on a lot of really really interesting product and cool product and working with other people um, that I think are really it's really important and kind of like to 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 be a staple in the industry and continue to continue to provide value to people and, and share uh, creative from a different perspective. So I'm really excited on the, on the, the work front um, for my full-time job, but I just can't share any details. On the, the personal side, um, the painting uh, specifically side, I started like with acrylic paints and I started with really like, not photorealistic, but like, I guess I call it like semi-photorealism, like try to be as, as accurate and detailed as possible types of paintings to now I'm really trying to the momentum swing into like abstract work. 
because it's, again, it's out of my comfort zone. I don't know anything about it. I also struggle, this is a controversial topic, but like I struggle with like abstract work because like how does anybody place a value? It's a really <laughs> beholder of abstract, right? Yeah. Like if it's detailed, if it's photorealistic, you can tell there's, there's apples to apples you can measure. With abstract, it's in the eye of the beholder, which is exciting, but also concerning. But to me that like, dark sea that I don't know what I'm diving into is exciting for me. So uh, on the painting front, I'm going to do a little bit more abstract work. And then I'm also continually, I do a bi-weekly drop uh, on NFTs uh, with my painting. So I elevate my artwork to become digital and to become animated. And learning that new process has been super fun. Again, I was informed through Clubhouse um, about this space. And the, that digital space is so fun and to listen to and observe and be part of really. Uh, and I don't do it for a monetary uh, value in any way, shape or form. Like I haven't made any money on it. I've lost money theoretically, but to me, it's more about the process and learning it as it's gonna become a staple in art in general moving forward. So that's that's gonna be continual. Um, but in terms of like big personal projects, I'm, I'm excited to hopefully get back to traveling this year. That's going to be really important. I'm taking some time off and going on a trip with a friend of mine to LA, uh, in a couple of weeks. So Fun. I love I'm, visiting LA. Yeah. To me, that's going to be, that's going to be, uh, an instrumental source of inspiration for myself. And, um, yeah, you just, I, I don't know. Uh, I mentioned this a little bit earlier. I used to have a five-year plan. I used to have 10-year goals. I used to have, I want to be this job title by this date, this, I want this number of followers by this date. That's a bunch of fucking bullshit. And I apologize for cursing, but it's the truth. It's like life is going to slap you in the face and derail you completely. COVID is a pure and prime example of that. Everybody <laughs> had a five-year plan until COVID came around. And it's like, take things day by day things are going to change your process is going to change your creativity is going to change be more open-minded to doing new things and i think more opportunities will present themselves for anybody mm, i love it you guys david has been an amazing guest he has been dropping so many gold nuggets and value bombs i love it so much david thank you so much for being on the show and allowing my podcast be the first podcast platform that you are a guest on so yay to that everybody go follow him on instagram i'm gonna have all his links um the show notes below even check out his podcast he has amazing guests on his show as well uh follow him on tiktok too because he has really cool tiktoks that he creates showing <laughs> his artwork and process um so it's really cool uh, but yeah, just make sure you're following him. Check out all his stuff. Um, and David, thanks again for your time and being on the show with me. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been fun. I it's it's always a good time to like reflect and talk a little bit about yourself. Like I try to get rid of ego as much as possible. But like, thank you for the opportunity. I, I massively appreciate it. And uh, if anybody wants to reach out, my DMs are always open. I answer every single one of them. I answer every single comment. Uh, I'm more than happy to connect and try to support or help anybody. Um, that's always a, a big thing that I, I try to end, end on, right? Lighting more people up. Boom. I love it. So you hear that invitation, guys. Use it. Take advantage of it. Well, don't take advantage of him, but take advantage of the opportunity <laughs> to ask him any questions, gain some insight if you need it, and reach out. Don't be shy. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, listen to a couple more episodes, and share it with a fellow Gangstar creative. 
I would also be forever grateful if you left a review letting me know what you loved and what you'd like to hear more of. And as a thank you for leaving me a review, I'll gift you both my 10 ways to create a Gangstar brand PDF and five ways to boost your online sales PDFs. Just screenshot your review and DM me the picture on Instagram at Devonna Stimson and I'll send it right over to you. Until next time, cheers to annihilating the status quo of the starving artist.